Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Kyle Wing, from EPAM Continuum. Pioneers are known for settling new land, so-called uncharted territory. We still know some of their names. Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, there are songs about them. Today, those pioneers still exist, out at the forefront, defining the unknown, charting the uncharted. John Brownstein is just that person. His official title is Chief Innovation Officer at Boston Children's Hospital, but he's also a professor at Harvard Medical School, the founder of several global patient-facing public health systems, such as HealthMap. He also created the field of computational epidemiology, and most importantly, he was an advisor for the again popular movie Contagion. His work has been published in over 200 peer-reviewed papers and recognized by the White House. And right now, John Brownstein is a very busy man. If you're somehow listening to this 50 years in the future, let me give you some context. We are in the middle of a global pandemic. At the time of this recording, nearly 642,000 people have died from COVID-19 worldwide, with nearly 16 million confirmed cases. The United States is responsible for almost a quarter of the global deaths from the pandemic, and there are presently very few signs of things slowing down. Needless to say, there is a lot of uncertainty right now. So naturally, we called on John. John's no stranger to the resonance test. Back in August of 2019, he spoke with our very own word wizard, Ken Gordon, in our Boston studio. You know, the good old days when we, like, went to the office and saw real people. But today, he's speaking with our own Jonathan Swerzy, our healthcare vertical lead. Brownstein's cogent insight and measured optimism is a much-needed perspective in these trying times. Listen as they talk through the future of virtual care, how we might get kids back into school safely, and what makes the perfect pandemic for a movie. So, John, last time um, we had you on the residence test, we had the great pleasure of meeting you in our studio in the seaport and showing you around a bit. And today we've sort of reinvented this, right? And we're talking remotely. I'd love to just hear a little bit from your perspective how this pandemic has affected the way that you work at, at Children's Hospital. Well, yeah, and thank you. There are many ways uh, that uh, this pandemic has impacted me. I mean, my background is an infectious disease epidemiologist, and I've been running a research group tracking emerging infectious diseases for, you know, almost 20 years. So, you know, that effort, that part of my job has been in full swing. Um, you know, I also run the accelerator at the hospital and digital health efforts, and, you know, clearly the team dynamic has changed by being, uh, you know, at home, but also the importance of sort of a digital initiative and um, using technology as a way to keep access for patients that need healthcare is also equally important. So two parts of my job, one thinking about pandemics broadly, uh, and then the other sort of helping patients uh, access care, both of those have sort of become front and center. It's, it's really interesting. It's, we've been doing a lot of work, as you could probably imagine, um, recently around um, the latter of those two questions, right? How do we um, enable virtual care? Um, and so is that something that is new for children's? Because you're a nationally known hospital. 
Yeah, no, we've been we've had a digital effort now for many years, but there are you know both internal and external factors for why you know we haven't had the adoption that we've always hoped. Clearly, there are issues with um, regulatory side of things and um, licensing and reimbursement um, that have held us back. Um, you know, the, the the internal issues more sort of around. Would people feel comfortable, say, doing a virtual visit with their physician? Would physicians feel comfortable practicing this way? All of those barriers have sort of fallen aside uh, when we hit the pandemic because it was sort of out of necessity that these regulatory issues had to sort of um, be taken out and, you know, people just had to quickly get comfortable. And so we started, you know, doing virtual visits, you know, you know, in numbers that we've never seen, you know, in a single day, we would do as many virtual visits as we've done, you know, the last quarter of 2019. So um, we have scaled up. Luckily, the hospital had has put, you know, real investment behind uh, digital prior to the pandemic and recognized that the patient experience um, is going to have to involve some engagement with technology, whether that's in, in prior to, to coming to the hospital, whether that's in, you know, the conversations with a provider and if it's post-discharge, if it's you know, remote patient monitoring, many aspects need to be invested in. The tools were there, but how do we put that together in a cohesive um, set of, uh, of tools that make sense for a patient? And so, yeah, I mean, it's been amazing to see the sort of rapid um, adoption of these things out of necessity. Oh, and and those regulatory changes that you that you've talked about, right? Those certainly have been relaxed. Um, what is your what are your thoughts about whether you know when we are through this, are these relaxations going to be permanent, or do you think that they're going to you know they're going to be um, reversions? Yeah, I think that um, you know it may not be the same scale because we're not going to have to have that same scale of virtual. But I think the cat's out of the bag. For the most part, I mean, we've seen, um, you know, continuation of some of these measures now. Um, and I think the more time that we have and experience with these platforms, the, the recognition that it's improving experience, it's creating convenience and access in ways uh, that we always expected, but didn't necessarily have the proof points for. Now we have the data to back that up. And, and I think there are many people that are pushing sort of for permanent change. And my prediction is that we will see that. Interesting. And um, you said before that you spent 20 years tracking infectious disease. And so, you know, from that, that perspective as a digital epidemiologist, you know, how has 2020 been different for you? <laughs> well, I mean, we've been involved in developing technology to, to perform surveillance on a wide range of emerging infectious diseases, whether it's you know, SARS, H1N1, Zika, Ebola, um, they've all had their unique challenges. Um, some have been, uh, you know, some have been bigger than others, but nothing anywhere remotely compares to what we've experienced with COVID. Um, this virus has some really uh, concerning properties, um, you know, if you were going to make a perfect virus uh, driving a pandemic, you know, this one would be one. And in fact, I was an advisor on the movie Contagion, and a lot of the, the the characteristics of the virus that were come up with, you know, resemble COVID, right? So uh, 
a virus that you know moves out of an animal population that there's no real prior immunity to. It causes a complex set of symptoms, but then also you know a high degree of transmission when you're asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. Low mortality rate in that you know there's an ability for this to spread efficiently globally. Um, and, you know, exposes our challenges in the vaccine manufacturing process, you know, hits hardest those that are vulnerable, elderly, immunocompromised, so not as much the young as maybe some other flu strain. So it, it, it is a perfect storm of characteristics um, that has, you know, created some ser- significant challenges of, as we've seen in terms of a response um, and has highlighted the need for better data and better insights into uh, spread and transmission and burden. And that's where some of the technologies we've been developing for so many years have, you know, been shown to at least provide some value, especially in the absence of a real robust uh, federal government response. Interesting. And, and tell me a little bit more about the, this, this notion of data. I want to, I want to probe into that just a bit, right? So I know the Trump administration shifted the collection of COVID data um, away from the CDC and to a company called Teletracking Technologies, um, and they're collecting it. You know, Teletracking is collecting the data on behalf of of HHS. Um, I'm wondering, like, does it matter who's collecting our national data, and if it does, who should it be? Where does that data belong, and how is it most, you know, most able to be used? Yeah. Well, in a, in a perfect world. Uh, CDC would be the hub of that information. The CDC is the backbone of the public health response in any major event, and they've essentially been sidelined. Um, and so that really um, is a concern. Um, you know, that's where all the expertise lies. That's where the real sort of knowledge um, exists within um, this country, um, and they've been sort of put aside. And that's been that's been really um, problematic. The other, um, but on the flip side, on some level, it doesn't really matter where the data lies as long as there's clear data sharing and transparency in how the data is collected, how it's stored, how it's um, integrated, um, and so, and then also how it's made available to outside like researchers um, and policymakers. And so, you know, that's the big concern. I mean, the reality for us is that we've been relying on non. CDC data from the start, uh, pulling data from informal sources, pulling data from state databases. There's been a number of different efforts across the country that are not necessarily relying on CDC as the main information provider. So, you know, it's it's not a disaster in the sense we still have the same data that we've been working with, um, but it is problem. I mean, it's just, it spells a broader um, concern of, you know, how uh, CDC is is being sort of uh, dethroned or, or gutted um, in the response. And just to, to understand a little bit more, because you've had to work around some of the gaps in data, it sounds like you've found additional data sources historically anyway. So do we as a country have I guess, or I guess it implies that we don't have that one data source or one source of you know, collected data that's accessible that helps us in these public health crises. Uh, we don't have any one single source. I mean, any response to a major uh, pandemic is going to be sort of a focus on integration of data from multiple sources for 
COVID, I mean, we're thinking about um, laboratory data, we're thinking about ED utilization, we're thinking about hospitalizations, we're thinking about mortality data. You know, our team has a big focus on symptom tracking and syndromic information. So the best response, the best sort of situational awareness comes from pulling a wide range of data sets. And in fact, I think that's probably that some of the silver lining of this response is that there's been incredible investment um, in um, the integration of data sets um, and the integration of new information from companies like Facebook and Google has been incredible to see. Um, you know, they're providing data on symptom surveys, there's data on mobility. All these can be early indicators of potential changes in the course of the epidemic. So that's the silver lining to see sort of the broad sort of uh, insight and input and resourcing from a wide range of new players. And I know you've recently spoken about some of the layers of data that you've looked at that have been really interesting, like um, an analysis of parking lots at hospitals, um, looking at symptom tracking related to, to coughs or diarrhea or fevers. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, we, we for many years have been focused on a wide range of data sets to get earliest insight into infectious diseases. And so, um, you know, we focus first on mining news media and, and, and social media that moved into some efforts around crowdsourcing. Then we started thinking about different data sets like you know, open table cancellation rates, the restaurants as an indicator of social disruption or Yelp reviews of food poisoning as an example. We also have looked at search query data. So what people input into Google or other search engines as a, as a tool to get insights. And then the, um, the final thing that, you know, that has come up is, you know, around looking at satellite data. And we've published on this in the historically where we could look at um, parking lots of healthcare institutions, and based on how busy they are, you can infer that something was happening in the population. You couldn't confirm what it was, but again, that data in itself can be at least an additional information stream as you're trying to assess, you know, some form of disruption, which could be, you know, an infectious disease outbreak. Interesting. Um, I want to shift gears to well, it's still staying within the same genre. But there's a question um, I've been wrestling with a little bit lately, and I would love to get your thoughts on it. Um, so I know you're, you're intimately familiar with the data, but as of July 19th, um, the U.S. had more than 25% of the confirmed COVID cases in the world, but we're only about 4.5% of the global population. And I would love to get some of your thoughts about what makes the United States such a fertile ground for, yeah. for COVID-19. Yeah, this is a big point of debate. What is sort of driving these large numbers? And of course, uh, there are uh, politicians that would like to attribute that to just our incredible uh, testing capacity. Um, you know, and clearly that has maybe some small part of it, but it's definitely not anywhere near the whole story. Um, we, you know, when you start looking at test positivity, um, it, as high and increasing, that tells you that it's an outbreak that's out of control and tells you, in fact, that we're not testing enough. Um, and so it's not just a data artifact. It means that we have a serious, you know, epidemic on our hands that went uncontrolled. And unfortunately, the, much of that is related to the inability, at least of many parts of this country to sort of react appropriately. And, you know, 
as public health, we knew all the right tools. We knew know about the value of social distancing and mask wearing um, and stay at home orders, hand washing, all these things. I mean, they're, they're not, you know, earth shattering concepts um, and they've been communicated heavily. And in fact, the public fully understands them, at least a good chunk of the public was behind it. But then you have a lack of sort of federal um, sort of leadership or mixed messaging. And then, um, you know, various states taking matters in their own hands and deciding between sort of public health and economy. And that's clearly those are really challenging uh, issues to face. But, um, you know, if you don't handle this virus and you don't take public health into account, the economy is going to get, you know, decimated no matter what. So, you know, many parts of the country opened up too fast. They didn't have adequate testing. They didn't have a good view on what was going on. And you can only open up a particular location gradually when you know what the background infection rate is, you understand what the transmission dynamics are. And so many parts of the country opened up very quickly. On top of that, we don't have the most healthy population. We have a population that, um, you know, where, where chronic diseases are, you know, heavily prevalent, you know, diabetes, chronic heart disease, obesity, all of these things all play a factor um, into sort of how, you know, these cases turn into severe outcomes and deaths. And so just as of, um, you know, today, we're seeing, you know, death count as high as it's been since May, uh, over a thousand people. So we're back into the full swing of this. Um, and that's really unfortunate because in some ways we thought with enough effort, we'd at least sort of get a few months of, of delay before things likely heated up um, in the fall, winter, when people start heading back inside and we have, you know, um, drier conditions. And then of course a flu epidemic. So anyways, it's, 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 it's sad to see, but in some ways, you know, many of my colleagues have been predicting this for quite some time. So it's not, it's not surprising. Well, you know, we've, I live in Massachusetts, probably, probably like, like, like you do just outside. I live just outside of Boston and, you know, we've been working from home now and, um, you know, since, since March and that's been, you know, a real challenge, but we've under, we've understood it. What, what do you think are the barriers to other people, um, I know that there that there's been challenges around the country. Um, are, are there things that we can do to help us have a more effective response even now? You're saying in Massachusetts, or no? Just I mean, you know, I'm thinking of Massachusetts in contrast, maybe with other states, for example. Yeah, I mean, I, I give a lot of credit to Massachusetts and and, and Boston specifically. Um, they have not been afraid um, to do the hard things in terms of being incredibly cautious around reopening, around um, listening to, to public health experts, uh, interpreting the data, and being incredibly careful and looking at sort of where we are with new daily cases, with test positivity, with hospitalizations. And, you know, I see the among many of those daily calls and it's, it's an amazing to see the collaboration across all parts of um, the ecosystem trying to, to make these decisions with the sort of focus on, you know, keeping this epidemic at bay, which then enables these sort of phased openings. Um, but I don't think that it's so different um, 
from the knowledge that other states have, I think these are not, there's no secret sauce. Yes, Massachusetts has some level of contact tracing efforts, which may eventually be useful. But the big efforts were just around stay at home and mask wearing and, 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 and not really promoting gathering of people, especially in close proximity indoors, like, you know, bars and nightclubs, which we saw was a big culprit in other parts of the country. So none of this is sort of earth shattering conceptually. It's just about execution. You know, one of, one of the things, um, you know, in addition, well, in addition to being, um, you know, working in healthcare and healthcare innovation, right? I have my professional life. I have a, per- I have a personal life. I'm, I'm married. I, I have two young kids. They're ages nine and six. And, you know, a lot of us have been talking um, with our, you know, we're talking with a lot of our friends about school. Yeah. Right? And and do kids go back to school? And I know you've said um, when it comes to transmission, kids are important vectors because they'll infect their parents and infect their grandparents. Yeah. What's you, what's your view regarding opening schools this fall in, in Boston and elsewhere? Well, we desperately want to open up schools, and I think that should be a singular focus of what we're doing today, which is to get kids back into classrooms, get kids learning. I mean, there's such a need Um I mean, for the kids themselves, for the parents, um, we should be doing everything we can to create um, a backdrop of transmission that is allowable for kids to go back to school. Problem is, kids are not dead ends of infection. They don't. They're not like in a bubble. They get the virus. They can transmit the virus. And there's debate of studies of how much they can. Can they do it as much as adults? Is it less? You know, maybe it's half. Maybe kids that are you know ten to twenty are more so than kids zero to 10. But at the end of the day, kids are contributing to this, even if not the same as adults. And so you put kids back into those settings um, and, and we don't have a lot of data of kids in schools and kids in schools that's indoors, close proximity, not the best hygiene that will offset any sort of reduction in the kids, you know, potential biological potential of transmitting. And so, then you put sort of the teaching teachers and staff at risk. You put then the families at risk. You put the communities at risk, and that's the issue. Um, and that's one that you know clearly uh, will prevent um, schools from reopening if if we have you know the case numbers like the way they are, for instance, in California or Texas or Florida. And are, what kinds of things should we as parents do? if our kids do go back to school and what kinds of things should the schools themselves be doing that can help minimize the risk of transmission? I mean, from the, from a parent's perspective, it's all about, you know, guiding them around mask wearing and, and teaching them proper ways to, to, to wear their masks and, you know, hand washing and all, you know, the, the, the basic things. Um, but then a lot of burden is on the schools in terms of how do they keep, um, kids, you know, potentially separate in their own sort of classroom bubbles, uh, socially distanced from one another, mask wearing, cleaning of surfaces, ventilation, um, you know, not creating environments where all the kids are mixing together. So there's a lot of work in terms of protocols. And I do worry that there's going to be a disparity between, you know, schools that have enough resources to accommodate uh, these directives and those that just don't have the resources to. So that, that is a big concern of mine. Interesting. Yeah. It seems like, um, this, this disease and the, and the impact of it has been disproportionately 
um, shared, right? For for people who work in positions where they can work remotely um, in a learning kind of, you know, and thinking economy versus um, a more labor intensive economy. Um, And that's, if I hear you right, that sounds like some of what's going on potentially with schools. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately um, this pandemic has illustrated huge disparities, um, you know, and over and over again, it's, it's a problem, you know, there's economic disparities and, and racial disparities. I mean, it's it, this pandemic has highlighted this in, in severe ways because you know, the people that are forced to work as essential workers, those that are getting the negative impacts from the virus, those that can't afford to have their kids in school, then the, they're the kids that are going to have trouble going back. And so it's just it's just compounding um, all of these issues, which hence you know we know why um, you know the big reason behind some of the the protests. You know these are two sort of pandemics that are sort of going hand in hand. Um, you know, there's been another sort of strange effect of the, of the pandemic or something I, I, I've thought of as a, as a paradox. Um, and it, it seems that at a time when we most need our providers, and I mean, you know, broadly speaking, all providers, um, many of them have found themselves out of a job. Um, so I'm sure you're familiar with some of the layoffs in large primary care um, organizations. You know, some of that may be because of the prominence of, of the fee-for-service model, right? So no service performed, no payment. Mm-hmm. Um, what what implications, if any, do you think there are for payment models in light of COVID? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, it's a big question. And, you know, again, COVID may be forcing the conversation around, you know, fee for service and whether, you know, that makes sense anymore. Um, I think COVID also highlighted potentially some shifts in just primary care offerings just generally, right? You know, there are many locations, you know, places like Walmart and and other types of more innovative solutions in offering care um, and then, you know, virtual options. And, you know, people could be shifting away from the sort of traditional primary care model. So it might be payment issue just might be sort of an access issue and, and a convenience. And so all these together um, on one hand might be leading to, you know, some, some layoffs, but it's also fueling really interesting sort of digital health startups and companies investing in sort of what the future of care should look like at a lower cost. Would, would a value-based model help or would it just shift, you know, shift the burden or defer it? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know in the COVID model, uh, you know, it it may just shift it. I mean, I think that there are, I mean, part of the issue right now is that there's just a lot of deferred care. Um, and so I, we have no idea what's going to look like on the other end. Um, you know, there's potentially a huge amount of costs that are going to come, that are going to pile up because of deferred. So I'm not sure value it, you know, it's it's conceptually the right thing to be sort of addressing and, and it's what's right for our health system. I'm not sure if, you know, COVID is sort of the key to unlocking that or not. Yeah, it's 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 fair. It's, just, it's something that, that we've been thinking about. Um another you know effect that I was talking with a friend of mine about who's um he's an anesthesiologist and he said, you know, people are not coming into the ER even if they should be, yeah, um, and they're coming in later, and so they're sicker, and it's becoming a challenge. 
Do you know if that's happening in at Children's as well? And is that happening with pediatric populations or is that just something that's very I mean, different? It's something that we need to be studying, right? Is, you know, this lack of access to care sort of going to create a huge burden on the health system, you know, next year and years to come. I mean, there's, there's, there's data points that suggest that in specific categories like cancer prevention and others. But I mean, I guess the jury's still out on pediatrics, um, you know, in pediatrics, we weren't hit as hard. So, you know, critical, uh, procedures, you know, could still move forward. Um, you know, our chronic patients that probably didn't get as much, you know, in-person engagement switched to virtual. So we expect that to be pretty consistent and not to see a major impact, but again, they'll be worth studying these, these outcomes in the coming years. There'll be plenty of, of you know, this'll be plenty of research material to understand uh, different care models because of, of what we are forced to be put into. It's certainly driving a lot of experimentation and innovation. Absolutely. Great. Well, I want to thank you and be mindful of your time. Um, is there anything you thought we might be talking about with you today that we didn't touch on? No, I think we did a wide range. It's great. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, same here. I really appreciate the questions and I'm glad we could cover sort of the wide, wide range of activities. Well, well, thank you so very much. EPAM Continuum integrates business, experience, and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we are very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Many thanks to John Brownstein for joining us today. We know you're even busier than normal. Jonathan Swarzy was our compassionate and ever-knowledgeable interviewer. Kit Palalas is on the soundboards, fixing everything in post. And our producer, Ken Gordon, keeps the wind in our sails even when the trees are tired of blowing. I'm your host, Kyle Wing, whispering to you from the floor of my closet. Thank you. Thank you.